My name is Ben Hyatt, and this is the Ministry Moments Podcast. Psalm 19.1 tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. It would follow from this that studying the natural universe should typically lead us to a deeper appreciation of both its creator and His handiwork. But if public perception is any indicator, this hardly seems to be the case. According to the 2015 Pew Research Center survey, the majority of Americans believe that science and religion are often in conflict in their claims about the nature of reality. Why does modern science seem to be characterized by a naturalistic worldview that rejects the existence of a divine creator? Was there a time when science and religion weren't viewed as incompatible? And if so, what has changed between then and now? My goal in this episode is twofold. I want to learn both about how we as Christians typically approach science, as well as how we ought to approach it. And to do that, I've invited Dr. Mark Clausen from Cedarville University to be on the podcast today. Dr. Clausen, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Great to be here. Today we're going to be talking about uh, two subjects that you have quite a bit of experience with, um, religion and science. Um, in your graduate career alone, you got master's degrees and PhD. You have... I'm going to try to list all your degrees, but maybe you could give us um, the history of yeah. your academic career, because it involves both a lot of religion and science. Well, it does. That's true, yeah. Uh, I have my bachelor's degree in physics, and then going to political science, then to um, law school, then uh, in uh, theology, historical theology, and then finally in ecclesiastical history and intellectual history, so including the history of science. Mm. So, mm. yeah. Um, you also teach a seminar here for the honors program called Religion and Science? It's a history, history of the relationship of history and or science and religion from the Middle Ages to Darwin. That's mm. the actual title, but we fudge a little bit on either side. Mm-hmm. What about the relationship between religion and science? Since you have a lot of expertise in both those areas, um, is there a personal significance to you in that relationship and seeing it, uh, how it plays out um, is there a personal significance there for you? Well, yeah, I guess I think partly. I, I wasn't a Christian when I was in the science majors, but then I became a Christian afterwards. And I developed over time sort of an interest in, in seeing how they actually related to each other, how religion could inform science and the limits of science and issues like that. And it carried me further into the philosophy of, of science and also that whole historical sweep of science. So I have an interest in it from... An academic perspective, an intellectual perspective, but also just to know how to teach in the church um, how those two should relate. We have a lot of people in my church, for example, and other churches who are in science fields or engineering fields or other STEM fields, and I think they need to know where the limits are and where things are um, aligned pretty well from a biblical theological perspective. Mm-hmm. You talk about the limits of science, and I think that in our modern society, the limits of science are something that have been forgotten somewhat. Um, I think a lot of people's views of modern science in broader secular culture, um, as well as among many prominent scientists and scientific figures, um, is very naturalistic and materialistic. There's this underlying assumption that the a belief in the existence of God is not only unnecessary, but antithetical to the inherent nature of what science is. Um, and the thing is, I don't 
at least from my knowledge of history, and the reason I'm having you on the podcast is because you can give much more clarity on this issue than I could. But at least my basic understanding is it wasn't always this way among scientists. Um, If you go back to the times of Isaac Newton, Galileo, Boyle, those are some big names, Pascal, um, all all of them were working from some sort of a theistic framework. Um, I believe even Einstein was agnostic in somewhat, his, uh, somewhat. Yeah. he wasn't christian by any means but no. he wasn't opposed necessarily to the idea of there being a god right who a created being, this yeah. world, a That's divine right. creator yeah um but if you, you can contrast that with today and i have sure. a, a specific example um that i was reading about in the new york times it's an older article but it's citing a scientific conference in new york city and there was a panel of Nobel laureates and they were asked the question, can you be a good scientist and believe in God? <laughs> and one of them was a chemist named Herbert A. Hoffman. Um, I believe he has a Nobel Prize in chemistry. And he responded immediately with, no, this kind of belief is damaging to the well-being of the human race. So there's this big contrast between what used to be an area of inquiry where the existence, belief in the existence of God wasn't really questioned right. to... The present, where there's almost a hostility. In some cases, yeah. Yeah, in some cases. Yeah. And not across the board, necessarily. No. But um, I guess my first major question in all of that would be, how did we get here? How did we get here? Yeah, yeah. that's a good question. Um, I would say that before the 17th century, um, there was a pretty widely held common assumption that even if, you, if, if your view of God was not orthodox view, even if it was somewhat heterodox, even heretical, as Newton was, Newton's view of God was somewhat like that. Still, your science could be predicated upon the existence of a God, and you wouldn't have any problem with that. You wouldn't have any problem with doing your science based upon that. Mm. Um, so what happens is in the 18th century Enlightenment period, uh, the separation grows between science and religion. As religion is undermined by undermining the scriptures themselves and also religion as an institution, and science becomes more prominent because of the rise of the empirical approach in the in the enlightenment period that people everybody's attracted to mm. this sort of scientific approach to things the two get split apart and god gets left out of the picture increasingly as science rises to prominence in the picture this is brought to its fruition in the 19th century with the positivist movement and the sort of cult of science or scientism in the 19th century and this carries on into the 20th century you have the logical positivist movement, which is the ultimate extreme of all this philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, by this time, people are saying in that movement that if a statement if a statement is not either empirically verifiable or falsifiable, or if it's not true by definition, then it is literally meaningless. So if you say something like, God exists, that is a meaningless statement to them in the 1920s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Now, thankfully, since then, somewhat scientists have become a little more self-aware and realize we're, we don't we can't be quite as confident about that as we used to be, mm-hmm. right? But that's where it started back around the set, late 17th century or so. Before that, the view had always been that your science was basically in some way tied to the Christian religion in the West, at least. Mm. Do you know of any specific like historical factors, social factors, maybe even like events or movements that influence that shift? That shift. Yeah, the big one is the Enlightenment period, which runs from roughly 1680 to about 1800. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an mo- intellectual movement that took place mainly among the elites, but 
included in the elites were the natural philosophers who were the scientists of their day. And they began to exalt the empirical approach to knowledge. The empirical approach to knowledge, of course, is that idea that what you know comes from in, from the senses into your mind, and that's that can become ultimately the only thing you can know. So if you get to the late 18th century, you look at people like Immanuel Kant, and he says, well, you can know about the phenomenal world here. That's the world where we do science, for example. We can see, we can touch, we can hear, we can experiment, observe, and measure, those kinds of things. We can't know anything about that world of the metaphysical, the world of God and of ethics and of angels and demons and so forth. He doesn't say those don't exist, but he says we don't know anything about them. Mm. So you follow one step further from that, because the Bible itself is being undermined and religion is being undermined during this whole period, mm -hmm. just cut God out altogether. So you get to Napoleon, for example, who has reportedly read um, um, one philosopher's work on the nebula, nebular theory, one scientist's work on the nebular theory, and he wrote this work, gave it to Napoleon, Napoleon read it, so the legend goes, calls the philosopher back or the scientist back, he says, I don't see God in here. And he says, I don't have any need of God. Mm. He says, okay, to, to do my science, I have no need of God. And Newton actually gave us that principle to begin with. Mm. He didn't. He's not saying I should cut God out, but he gave the principle that everything should be reduced to its the simplest way of explaining. You don't need anything superfluous to what you can find here, here and now, the, the, the senses and the experimentation, observation, and so forth. You don't need that to explain. So you don't need God, in essence. Mm. He's there, Newton says. But you don't need him. It's one easy step from there to just discard him altogether. Hmm. You say that um, the, the reductionist kind of approach to science, where you need to break it down to its bare essentials. And what that brings to mind for me is the uh, specifically the issue of the origins of our universe, um, whether the debate in science, whether it was created or whether it just came about randomly. Right. And this is kind of more my personal view as I've read about it myself. But it seems like as more and more um, more and more research is done and more and more theories are made about how the universe could come about randomly, it's almost like scientists are drifting away from that principle in that the further back you go, the more there seems to be the need for some uncaused cause. Mm -hmm. And in response to that, at least from my view, and I want to get your opinion on this, it almost seems like scientists start coming up with more and more complex, convoluted explanations for how something could come out of nothing. Um, I think the big example then is the multiverse theory, mm -hmm. where in order for t this universe to be coming to existence and that for to be probable um, if by random chance, there has to be billions and billions of other universes where different factors are at play and different circumstances are there um, to allow for this universe to exist. Um, so for me, it almost seems like the more and more we've gone down this road, the farther away we've gotten from maybe the thing that started this movement in the first place. Would you agree? And yeah, yeah. What's your view on that? I mean, the first thing you have to, Aristotle wrestled with this issue way back in ancient times before Christianity. You know, he says, well, what if we have this cause here, what caused that cause? If we have this cause, what caused that cause? We can go back infinitely in time. And the, the scientists of modern times, particularly, have really betrayed their presuppositions and biases in saying, for example, that uh, we came about through some evolutionary process that started initially who knows when, infinitely, or eons ago, whatever it is. 
because they can't know that with certainty. Uh, so they must supply the part of the equation that's missing in their theories. They can certainly tell us what things look like now. They can assume that because of what they look like now, they must have, there must have been a continuous process throughout time, a long period of time led from point A to point B. But they still can't tell us what really happened back at the beginning to cause that. Hmm. So they posit those causes, different kinds of causes. The multiverse theory has a major flaw, which is obvious, right? If you start with all these uh, myriads of universes, where did they come from? We have no idea, mm. right? So you're going to have to make up a theory to support that in some way if you don't want to stop somewhere. So this is this creates a problem for science. Some philosophers of science have recognized this. The average practicing science doesn't think about it a whole lot, but when they do think about it, they often come down on the side of, well, we're just accepting the theory that's out there right now, mm. the prevailing theory. Uh, speaking of the prevailing theory, um, that word prevailing, um, one, another question I would have about just this whole topic of science shifting towards a more naturalistic framework is, is the naturalistic assumption the predominant assumption in the scientific community? Is that really the case in that like the majority or most of scientists are working from this framework now? Um, yeah. Or are there more scientists who are open to theism or a theistic explanation than maybe we would perceive? Because I feel like often it does seem like the way the media presents the issue, the way it's reported, and the way um, the biggest voices in science, um, names like Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think Bill Nye the Science Guy, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it seems like that it would be, it, it's almost a few, very, very few scientists who actually are open to a theistic frameworks. Is that the case, or is it maybe more nuanced than, yeah, than that? Or? I think it's a little more nuanced. Uh, there has been some research out lately about how many scientists would actually accept theis, the, theism or some variation of theism, mm -hmm. or what we used to call deism, that kind of thing. Um, and they're more open than we thought. Um, we usually see the, the big names. They tend to be the ones who are not deistic or theistic, but more atheistic at, at worst, at least. Yeah. And they, they accept the more radical theories without God in them at all. Um, I don't think that's the case all the way across the board. Mm -hmm. And I think in some fields it's stronger than others. Uh, I think still in, in certain fields like chemistry and physics, you find more people, more scientists, who are open to something involving God. The biological field has been heavily influenced by evolutionary theory. It's, it's sort of a main premise or, or the center of its philosophy. If we can talk about a philosophy of biology, it would be prevailing evolutionary, um, evolutionary thought. Um, and it's, it's also per permeated now, the neurosciences, where, we're trying, where some individuals are trying to find a, a basis in science for mor morality. So you get into issues of uh, brain scans that show activity in your brain when you make a certain type of ethical decision, uh, this shows that it all comes from physical processes, sort of the reductionist, naturalistic view, right? Now, again, I say that, but I'm not going to say everybody's in that camp. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're, they're, it's more prominent in biology because that's the center. It's not necessarily the center in chemistry, for example. And it's, it's less of a center. It's, it's more of a center than chemistry for physics, I think, but still less than biology. Mm -hmm. So it, it varies from field to field. Mm -hmm. I think the two big issues where the 
conflict between a theistic framework and a naturalistic framework are highlighted are, like you said, evolutionary theory, and then kind of the extrapolation of that, which is the origins of the universe, the right. origins of humanity, where did this all come from? Why do you think it's those issues specifically that have brought about the most conflict, where this uh, the conflict between these two worldviews is most prominently highlighted? Mm-hmm. What, what brought it about, I think, was Darwin. Mm-hmm. Um, the evolutionary ideas were already in the air in 1859, but not biological and not specific, and not well uh, documented or supported, I should say, with data. Uh, Darwin comes along and he gives us this long, big book that's supported, su- supposedly, scientists of his day disagreed with this, by the way, who were not Christians, mm-hmm. that it didn't. It had a lot of data, but the data didn't make much sense to support his theory, right? But people were ready to accept it. And ever since then, you have the clash between the more Christian camp or the- Christian theological camp and the camp that accepts um, the Darwinian theory mm-hmm. or variations of Darwin- Darwinism. And in the middle, you've got, a, you've got an overlap, too. Christians who bought into evolutionary theory, at least partially, mm-hmm. uh, to sort of um, accommodate Scripture to the new theories, that, which shows, by the way, that they were willing to accommodate very quickly to, um, so that their reputations would be preserved as some people who were educated, who really knew what was going on. So, I mean, you can have disagreements at the margin. I agree with that. There's no problem with that. But I think a lot of people back in that period of the late 1800s tended to go toward Darwinism partly because they simply didn't want to appear to be backward in their viewpoints. Mm. And so they, they were willing to compromise with Scripture in order to look um, up to date in their scientific views of that period. And that's continued. That clash has continued between more religious people and less religious people. And in fact, I would argue this. It does boil down to difference in presuppositions or worldviews because mm. you cannot... You cannot empirically verify or falsify what happened in the beginning, the very beginning. Neither side can. So they're reduced to presuppositions and to assumptions and to some basis and some authority that they have. Christians, the Bible, right? Non-Christians, whatever theory seems to be the most popular at the time. And there are different ones that have been floating around for the last hundred and some years. Um, so that's what it kind of boils down to. We. We can't ever say, I don't think, that it's a matter of pure science versus science. Who's got the better science? Mm. We can have better science, yes, but that's not going to solve the problem, ever. It's going to boil down to where you start with your rock-bottom presuppositions, philosophically or theologically. Mm. Off of that, um, in the case of evolutionary theory specifically, do you feel like worldview influenced science more or science influenced worldview more? Do you think that part of why evolutionary theory caught on as much as it did and has become the commonly purported predominant view among the scientific community, um, do you think part of that is the fact that it plays into and allows for a naturalistic framework and that a lot of people were attracted to it because they were already wanting to work from that framework Mm -hmm. as opposed to the evidence leading them there? Right. I, I really, looking back to the 19th century in particular, it was scientism as a worldview mm. that really began to drive scientific endeavors back then. So you start with certain suppositions. This starts with Kant. It continues with um, other individuals like Heichel, Ernst Heichel in Germany and others, mm-hmm. where they're now saying 
uh, if science shows us something, and you can define science pretty broadly in this period, right? Science shows us something. Science proves to us something, verifies to us something. Then it must be true. If it violates any other uh, authority, such as Scripture, it, we have to dismiss Scripture because science now has become almost a cultish kind of notion in the 19th century. Uh, the, the, the word is scientism. It's a cult of science mm. that grew up in that period. And, and it was much of it was just pseudoscience. I mean, you could talk about phrenology, shape and size of the skull was supposed to scientifically prove which races were superior and which were inferior. Crazy stuff, right? Mm. But they did it, and they, they, they justified it based on what they said was scientific. Right? And that's likewise with the evolutionary theory, I think, in a, on a bigger scale. Um, you come to evolutionary theory, you come to Darwin's theory in particular, the origin of the species. It's published, and people say, yes, this verifies everything that I've already thought. Right? I'm already accepting all the assumptions underlying Darwin's work. And Darwin then gives me the data to prove it. This is what they're thinking during this period. Mm. So scientism is basically the assumption that science is the only true source of knowledge yep pretty much and sometimes a disdainful assumption mm. in the 19th century mm -hmm. like i said scientists are much more humble about it 20 20 21st century mm -hmm. but 19th century they were pretty arrogant at times about the the limits and possibilities of science coming out of the enlightenment right it, it stemmed from further views like for example that human beings were were evolving or not evolving but changing progressively to become better and better society would be better and better and science plays right into that. We can always advance forward, mm -hmm. right? So they pick that up from that. And the empirical method of science will show us how to do that the right way. Mm -hmm. So working in the framework we are living in now, the modern scientific community, and where scientism maybe isn't as strong as it was back in the early 19th century, but there's still, I guess, residual um, assumptions yeah. among many scientists and many people who... Uh, just in society who view science as the main way to have knowledge, um, how would you say is the best way for us as Christians to respond to that viewpoint that science is the only way of knowledge and to present our framework where there are other sources of knowledge that are equally valid and, in fact, in the case of Scripture, supersede scientific claims to knowledge yeah. if there's conflict? Yeah, yeah, I... I I think one, one thing we can say to all non-Christians or people who accept scientism sort of as their uh, presupposition mm -hmm. to start with is that um, science has done a great deal of good for all of us. So I would never deny its, its outcomes, its, its results that it's produced for humankind. Benefit, welfare, human welfare has been in, increased tremendously. That's good. Furthermore, I would also say that... We need to be humble in our approach to interpretation, too, of Scripture. Uh, there, are, there are Scripture passages that have been misinterpreted and then justified to prove some, some particular um, outcome that just was not true. For example, uh, in Galileo's era, right, the, the church said that the, the teaching for, through the Middle Ages had been, up to, the time of Gal, up to the time of Copernicus and then later on Galileo, was that the, uh, the universe, everything in the universe revolved around the earth at the center, Right? And the church insisted that that was true, even though they didn't have a, biblical ba a good biblical basis for it. They insisted. They interpreted the texts to prove that. Right? We've got to be careful to make our interpretations to be as accurate as they can be. Right? Before we make the argument that Scripture puts a limit on your scientific knowledge here, 
at X point, right? If we're confident that we, we can make that argument, we need to become confident first before we make that argument and be humble and interpret um, the best we can and not just throw something at people, mm. right? That's mm. important for us to do. I think on the other side, I think we need to call science itself to be humble. Uh, the scientism outlook or, or worldview tends to begin to think that science is everything or and nothing else really counts, the, and, and that science never really goes wrong. But the fact is we've had scientific theories throughout the ages that have turned out to be completely wrong about everything. When you study the history of science, you realize it's not always been right. But scientism makes you lose that perspective. It's kind of like, well, yes, whatever we say must be right because we've done the experiments or we've done the measurements or we've made the observations. It must be right. It's not always been right. right? Mm. Even, even when the empirical method became prominent, it still wasn't always right. Mm. So there's some things we can do there, I think, can interact with the other side, so to speak, and find common ground, actually. Specifically for those of us um, Christians who are either working currently or maybe students at Cedarville who are going into fields of science like biology, chemistry, physics, or the like, um, what advice would you have for those people specifically who are going to be working in a field where there are assumptions, naturalistic assumptions, and most of their colleagues, or at least a good number of their colleagues, will be working from those assumptions? What advice would you give to them to best defend and present their um, biblical worldview and to have integrity in working from that worldview while also being able to work in that naturalistic environment. environment. Yeah. I, I think really the first thing we ought to do is, is learn what they're thinking, right? Get to know them. Actually get to know what they really believe, right? Mm. As much as possible which means developing friendships as much as possible as you can in those fields and, and getting to know these people personally as well as professionally, intellectually, and know what they're thinking uh, and, and listen very carefully to that, right? Before rushing in and saying, well, that's a stupid idea, right? <laughs> because um, Christianity doesn't support that, right? No, I wouldn't use that approach. I'd be very careful, listen first, get the full picture, try to understand it well, and then I would get to do my homework and see, okay, where where do we differ? Let's find some common ground. Well, let's find out where we differ too. Let's be willing to discuss it civilly, right, with a civil attitude toward each other and say, even if I don't agree with you, I'm not going to reject you. And likewise, I don't want you to do that either, right? We can talk about this. And perhaps we can be able to come to a discussion that would lead them down that road uh, slowly in most cases, but Inevitable. I mean, it's going to happen, potentially. Mm. Mm. Well, Dr. Clausen, thank you for taking time to come on the podcast. Sure. Um, really valued the conversation we'll be able to have on this issue and your input. So, thank you. All right.